to another edition of Top Lines and Tales and to our recent series where we are looking at the history of native breeds of livestock in the UK. This week we're once again sponsored by Harborough and grateful for that sponsorship. Uh, welcome back to part two of our history of the Shorthorn cattle breed where once again I'm joined by top Shorthorn uh, breeders Kerry Coombs and John Scott. And uh, Firstly, I just want to make a correction to a mistake that I made in last week's uh, podcast where I mentioned that the bull Comet sold for 5,000 guineas, where in actual fact he sold for $5,000, which is more around uh, 1,000 guineas. John, we turned in last week uh, around about the 1940s, so uh, we've still got a bit of a, a way to go yet, fellas. Yeah, a, a little bit to go yet, Andy, but some really interesting stuff. Um, to go through this, this second phase of this podcast, so looking forward to it. It has to be reminded here that the Shorthorn breed uh, always, well, followed two paths from the outset and, and eventually did uh, take a fork in the road in, in the late 50s and perhaps the the beef cattle from Collins and Booth and possibly Crookshank so are the ones we're, we're more interested here rather than those uh, the dairy ones from, from Bates, but uh, the dairy shorthorn, as we mentioned, held a strong place marker in history right through to the 70s and beyond and shouldn't be dismissed. And for Would it be right in saying when we lost the dairy shorthorn, did the, the beef shorthorn lose a bit of those milky aspects as the dairy declined, John? Or do you think maybe that, uh, you think maybe that, that we managed to keep the best of, of, of both bits? I think, as with all breeds, there'll be, there'll be milkier strains um, within a breed. And, and yeah... There's undoubtedly some great milk came from the, the the dairy side of things, but no, we've got plenty there. I think they're all they're, they're, they're such a versatile breed. You know, they've got the milk, they've got the beef, they eat really well, um, they're, they're easy to handle, and yeah, I think we've got the best of both worlds still in the breed. Yeah. So certainly, we'll come back to touch on that with uh, Kerry towards the end of this this episode when we t- when he, we talk about both uh, of your own herds. And I heard that maybe we missed out when singling out a few of those. Uh, early influences uh, last week would have been the, the Bapton herd and we would be churlish not to mention them and again started in the late 1800s by uh, J. Dean Wills in, in Wiltshire and the herd was strong on the show circuit and uh, notching up 820 prizes including 73 championships in 10 years now that chaps I think that's a that sounds a bit like pot hunting to me don't you 820 prizes that sounds like you wouldn't have many Saturdays at home during the summer would you with that little lot going on <laughs> No, indeed, Andy. Um, Bapton, they certainly made a name for themselves. Um, as you say, it had been founded in the 1860s, and it, I think it did become, from what I can gather, became a bit of a trophy herd. Yeah. And it was a herd that over the over the piece changed hands several times. I think it belonged to a Sir Chubb of Seven Oaks, and, and it belonged to... Mr. Rank of, of the film company. Oh, I didn't know that. Did yes. I've got certainly yeah. got that it continued into the twenties when they won another ninety, another nineteen championships in three years up to nineteen twenty-seven, and then the, when the herd changed hands, they carried on racking up the prizes into the the thirtieth. So that's under the ranks, was it? And 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 bulls such as uh, Air Pilot and Battleship can still be found in pedigrees today, and and uh, Bapton Constructor sold for. 15,000 in uh, in 1956, I think, to Cal Rossi. I might be wrong there. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. Another reason for mentioning the uh, Bapton herd was that in 1950, Gordon Blackstock uh, went to Bapton and uh, having previously been at Cal Rossi. And uh, Gordon's a name that'll crop up regularly in this series as one of 
Britain's, they don't do a Britain's Got Talent when it comes to cattle. Remember, if they did, I think uh, Britain's one of his, Britain's most talented cattlemen uh, of all time. And he's also credited as uh, one of the first to bring the pole short on genetics to the UK. And uh, Gordon was always at the sharp end of everything, wasn't he? Uh, um, in a few breeds, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think he was known as a, the great little Irishman. Um, and, but it's, it's one of those those characters that we the cattle breeding industry seems to throw up from time to time, doesn't it? And of course, he actually he had he actually ended up with his own herd. The Den End herd was his, wasn't it? Okay. So he made his own yeah. mark. Yeah, that's right. Certainly, he turns up in 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 photographs in, in some of those lovely photographs from the fifties and the sixties. And and again, talking about the Bapton um, herd, you said it was was bought by the the Rank family, and then they sold it to Cecil Moores in nineteen fifty six. Who, of course, is from Football Pools fame, and another member of that family will turn up in our Aberdeen Angus podcast in a in a couple of weeks' time in the form of Sir John Moores, of course, from the from the Moss herd. So uh, those guys spent their money uh, wisely. If if we move on into the Second World War, a name that will come to the fore and be familiar with quite a few people was that of uh, Walter Vigus of the Revelex herd, and uh, probably a bit more prominent in the dairy short-on side. But his son, of course, went on to be one of the, the founders of the Simmental breed in the UK, and uh, it, it, it's surprising how many of these old families came back later again with the Continentals, isn't it? And if it's in the blood, uh, you, you can't the animals, then... Uh, you, you can come back in breeding something different to another time and still be back at the top. Yeah, um, you do have those families that appear in different breeds. And, and, and actually, some of the, I think some of the ones that were originally in short terms and got into continentals, and you see them back now in short terms, and you see it in the sheep world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other key bit to this is, is getting those youngsters out to learn about breeding stock, not just working in farm, but breeding stock mm-hmm. on other farms. And that's what those those some of these people way back were doing and it's really important we still do that sure sure indeed yeah wise words uh, another herd i'll mention is the canella herd from the campbells near aberdeen and and with a lot of influence from the citadel herd that herd goes back to 1847 claiming one of the, the oldest herds in the country although it was dispersed in uh, 1891 and and a successions of uh, sylvester campbell have been uh, kept the flag flying in the breed uh, for a long time and a lot of their cattle would have gone for export in the 1920s and then they had a purple patch in the 50s with uh, averaging 2,500 for 13 bulls in 1956 and selling uh, uh, selling an 8-week old bull calf for 5,000 guineas to Bapton so there we go we, and the current uh, Sylvie Campbell is a regular contributor to, uh, and a mine of knowledge to our Top Lines and Tails Facebook page having had business interests in Brazil so uh, I'm sure he'll keep us right uh, boys if we, if we step out of line on this one Another one, um, again, probably goes back a long while, of course, is uh, Gerald Turton of the Upsall herd, um, Carey, another influential breeder. Well, indeed, Andy, uh, I think um, Sir Edmund Turton, um, who is the great uncle of Gerald Turton, um, purchased four pedigree heifers and his first bull calf was registered in Coates Herd Book in 1909. Uh, And before the Second World War, um, upsell heifers were being sold to Canada, and after the war, bulls were sold as far as field as Russia, New Zealand, South America. So, they, you know, there's some heritage there. And again, um, again, a, a herd that's still going today. I know, John, I remember you buying a, 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 an upsell bull recently that's done very well for you. Yeah, we bought Dakota of upsell um, and did really well for us, um, a cracking, big, lengthy bull. And, and the good thing about Gerald and his breeding philosophy is he's always he's stuck to his guns and he's bred the cattle, sort of cattle. He's wanted to, to breed. He's brought in a lot of semen over the years from Australia 
Um, no, and he, and he still has a cracking herd of cattle there. And, and as Kerry says, you know, he's been one of those stalwarts of the breed and, and was with it in, in, in the fairly dark times when, when we when numbers dwindled quite low. But um, And it's great that he's been there to see things um, increase again and, and yeah, seeing how successful things are today. Great, great to give him a, I to give him a credit. I, I, know we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about polled cattle a, li- a little bit, but it's something that Gerald's been particularly keen on. And, and I, in 1960, he bought an American bill, Hildale Kalani, I think, the 100th. Um, from the west coast of america and ever since then um gerald has uh, pursued polled cattle very strongly okay i'm going to bring in our american uh, aficionado in short horns uh, dr bob Hope. bob welcome back we spoke about the influence of the the short horns in america that sort of came very rapidly but then again we've been discussing on a podcast the uh, the the polled short horn gene and of course that one as did the the, the polled hereford gene um uh, was discovered or started its life in the USA um I think because you guys had a lot of cattle with with massive horns over there at the time can you give me a little bit more of the history of how the pole gene uh, in the short horns uh, came together Bob please well I mean they went two different ways uh one was uh, was called single standards and that was where they took what we called native cattle and we have no native cattle in North America everything came over but they, they were a mix of Scandinavian Continental Europe and British cattle. They, they preferred cattle non-pedigreed uh, that were polled, naturally polled, and they took cattle that were similar in type to the shorthorns they wanted, and then they bred them to horn shorthorns and got polled females, and then continued that process until they were 31, 30 seconds. And that was that was one route that they took. And then they did find some what they called sports for mutations. There was one particular cow in Minnesota and some other ones. And, and when they we were able to find a mutation uh, that threw a polled calf, and there was a, a few very influential ones, and uh, they, they were called double standards. And, and they were able to come out with a herd book as early as 1894. And, and they became very popular. And by 1823, they had registered 60,000 heads. I mean, they propagated them very, very rapidly, and uh, and and these big long horns were a problem. And dehorning was very controversial. One person that was promoting dehorning, they took to trial for animal cruelty. He got he got off, but I mean, it was it was dehorning was not a popular thing at all. And sure. uh, but these big big horns were just they got caught in in racks and uh, they. You know, in the rail cars, and I mean, everything was, it was just a problem just moving cattle with that size horse. So getting them off uh, by genetically, this makes sense as it makes sense today. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they started out as pulled Dorums. They were, did not, they were not called short horns, they were called Dorums. And then they eventually changed the name in, in 1919 to pulled short horns. And then they merged them into the, uh, the regular short horn herd book. And uh, 1923, but unfortunately, those single standards, which are very, very high percentage shorthorns, they they got left. Now, the the one th- the interesting thing is they pretty much started these off of the Bates dual purpose bloodlines, and at that point, they had really fallen out of favor. And the Crookshank Scotch cattle were the ones that really were in favor, and and so where like Dr. C- William Crane started out. Some of the early people, uh, it really came to uh, 
uh, J.H. Miller. Uh, he's the one that uh, started breeding pole bulls through uh, Scotch blood cattle, Crookshank uh, cattle. And that's when they really took off with popularity. And when they, a, a general purpose breeds, they were winning shows, they were winning pole shows. And so really J.H. Miller is the one that introduced with Scotch blood and the, you know the World's Fair, they were winning, and gosh, there were some really big things. And I guess, I guess the the biggest triumph that we had with our pole cattle, this came much later, but I know this uh, will be covered later. But when uh, we had three major herds, the uh, Tea Gardens, Oakwood Stock Farm, and the and the Teamans, and and whenever they said they we sold one to the Bampton herd. Uh, back to the uh, uh, international champion, Queen of Hearts, for $8,000. Okay. And and that was kind of our big tri- triumph that we got one back into Europe for, for the Bampton herd of all places mm-hmm. to start in 1955 for them to start a pole herd. And gosh, that, that was a big thing for the United States. Oh, the, the Bampton herd, of course, that was Gordon Blackstock, and, and he has got a mention uh, elsewhere in, in this podcast. Uh, um, okay, th- thanks great. for that. Yeah, that was the one thing we had to export, and now ninety percent of our cattle are are pretty much polled, and so it it took off. And um, it, it's an odd thing to have a breed called Shorthorn that is ninety percent polled. <laughs> that, that is a very odd thing. Thank you, Bob. Uh, as always, enjoyable words of wisdom there from uh, across the pond. Um, but it would be after the war, into the 50s, really, that could be said that the Shorthorn rapidly lost ground, or to put it another way, got uh, nearer to the ground. And uh, numerous speeches are recorded by, by Worthies mentioning how the breed was taking its eye off the commercial home market and uh, bulls such as uh, the, the 1950 champion from Dennis Kadzo, which I'll, I'll picture. Uh, um, we can get a bit controversial here. Hey, we like a spot of controversy on the, on this podcast. So uh, Lord Lovett stated that uh, we're in danger of evolving a breed that cannot walk nor suckle a calf, and that, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much condemning it to to the gunnels. And um, this would be a common problem, I suppose, with three of the main UK native breeds, but none maybe more so than than the short one because they were chasing that thing. And and one rather well known breeder who I won't name. Um, said what objective of the shorthorn breeder he has not got a clue uh worrying times i guess when the breeders couldn't see the writing on the wall there chaps i mean it's fairly blatant wasn't it they were just fixated by this this market is my understanding and you know when you have a a herd that has got a, a boy i i I'm an apprentice for what a better um description allocated to each bull plus a milk mother for each bull going on a train to Stirling um, or Perth at the time, you know, it's not right. It isn't right. And there's going to be trouble. And there was. And, and of course, as with some of these other breeds, we see them, the, the photos on here and, and we all go, aren't they lovely, these little cattle? And, and, and then the likes of, of John Elliott turn around and go, well, they might be lovely, but uh, didn't do them a lot of good. And rightly so. Um, but uh, we've got to remember that some of these, these photos, they are, these young bulls were just calves, weren't they? I mean, Perth, a lot of the bulls would be under 10 to 12 months old, under a year, and some much younger, and they were just getting... Pretty fair pushed, as you said, a nurse cow, two or three nurse cows weren't there, and they literally would have a, have a yard full of nurse cows around the back of the mart after the sale and, and, and sell them on once the bulls had been sold. Yeah, extraordinary days. <laughs> what, what else can I say? Um, I, I just, I, I suppose it, herds have been 
modernizing uh, for a wee while before I came in. And I think it, the short horn breeds owe so much uh, to those breeders that hung on in there. Um, you know, the, the half dozen or so, maybe a few more that just, just kept the breed going and were, you know, were quite radical in, in their way. They, they, they lifted their cattle back up, made them modern again. And kept the lights right. on. And we'll see that in other breeds as well. As, as, and, um, but, but, but I think my point was there really that a lot of these photographs, they were small. If you see a bull photographed at Perth now, it's probably 18 months to two years old, whereas these things are only uh, 10 to 12 months. So they maybe weren't quite as small as, as, as we think. It's just a lot of them that are pictured and some of the iconic pictures of uh, Lindertes of Vols at uh, the Angus Bull at 60,000 was, was no taller than a table. But the poor thing was only, was only 10 months old. And I think we've got to, we've got to remember that some of these pictures are, are, um, are of younger cattle, just, just to be fair to them. Yeah, I think they bred a very short cannon bone. I think some of them were actually bigger lying down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's about summing them up. And I'm going to use one more analogy here. There was something in the in the USA that they called the half ton club. So this just sort of shows what uh, um, what their objectives were. I mean, they might have been low to the ground, but the half ton club was the object was to get a calf to 500 kilos as we know it within a year, uh, and that went back to the 19. 20s so these cattle could put the weight on and even went the shorter ones and there weren't many breeds back in in the 20s that could could get to 500 kilos in 12 months even even if they were pushed no not at all no I, you think about now where we need to have a finished carcass at 18 months if you if you're getting to 500 kilos at 12 months you're you're, you're motoring but I think these were special. I think it was one of these you got to join the club if you could stand on the scales and get somebody to lean on the back with a with his crook on the back and a couple of bags of sand in his pockets when they went on there. But it was obviously one of those things that the Americans like to achieve for extremes. Anyway, back to the, before I get in trouble again, back to the breeders of, of this time. And uh, the name Bob Adam would be synonymous, obviously more with Angus cattle, but we shouldn't disregard him amongst the short-horn breed. An, an able man, as we said, some of these people were are still breeding cattle today in, 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 in various other breeds and, 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 and proven this week again that they're in limousines and Angus and Shirley's and, and, and Chivitz. But Glam's benefactor sold for a record 16,000 guineas in 1962 to Bapton. So uh, um, the bull went on to win the Burke Trophy that year and that was the second year in a row for Bob because his bull from the year before called Trademark and he was out of the same cow. So, some man, uh, some man, Bob Adam, some man, the Adam family. Uh, um, indeed they were and indeed they are um, and, and you can't you know it's farming's commercial operation isn't it you know you see the writing on the wall and 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 why shouldn't you change breed um you know although might might have been praising those who stuck with the breed there's no reason on earth why um, anybody should should have to um you know i, I believe that adam they're back into the angus breed now aren't they um, young andrew and james are back in there yeah and and uh, they'll do well well, one day, maybe, maybe they'll be back in the shorthorns too. Who knows? <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. Another name uh, synonymous with a lot of households, anyway, would be the, the Dewhurst family from uh, Dunkeld. They'll be better known for their for their butchery business. But uh, they had a couple of herds, the uh, Dungarton herd and the Ard Benny herd would be in their ownership. And the, the latter would be breed a string of uh, Perth champions as well. And they could probably be credited for being the early users of both Canadian and New Zealand genetics in the UK, I think. And I think they also use some uh, Maine on Jew. Let's start with the Maine on Jew. Uh, John, you touched on it briefly uh, um, last week. To tell me about the Maine on Jew, then, um, its influence. Did that, did that come from Europe, or, and what is it? Um, I'll, I'll just I'll just refer to the Ardbeni herd briefly. Um, 
soon after I started in Shorthorns, the, the Ard Benny herd was dispersed. Um, and I was at the sale. I didn't buy anything. And I remember seeing this cow there that he sold. And I remember her name. Um, she wasn't bred, bred by the Dewhurst. She was bred by Gideon Rutherford at, near Cooper Angus. Her name was Iskamna Hosanna. And it was a fabulous name. But she was a fabulous cow. And it so turned out she was a, a main Anjou cross. Um, and the Dewhurst uh, had used the main Anjou. Um, of course, the, the main man known for the, the use of it was Bill Bruce, who will maybe come to in due course. Yes. Um, but the, the, the main Anjou was, uh, uh, it was proudly uh, stated on the, their own website that it was a fusion of the Durham and the Mansell in the 1800s. Um, so so I, I, I think there's huge credit to the breeders um, at that time who were looking to reinvigorate the breed. And they, they found a breed that was essentially um, bred from the Shorthorn. Um, and they thought it would work. They tried it. A number of them tried it, mainly Bill Bruce, but a number of others. Um, and um, they, they bred a modern Shorthorn. I think Essentially, I, that's what happened. I think that's incredible, and, and we can credit a lot as we can with the Leicester sheep around the world. We can credit the short on with be the bottom or underpinning a lot of breeds around the, the globe, which have been adapted to the, the mm -hmm. Santa Gertrudas and, and, and a Belgian blue, for that matter, as well. Of course, all came from short on uh, beginnings, but to to find this breed and, and yeah, so of course their origins did originally come from France. Because, yeah, they came over from France. I, I owned a couple of Main Anjou bulls uh -huh. uh, that had been imported at uh, one point. Um, they were good, big, quiet, a lot of timber to them. Mm -hmm. Good, big, quiet. They weren't extremely muscled, not the ones I came across. They were just good, solid cattle. And can I ask then that the, dare I say, and I said last week that we would like to be controversial on here, can I dare ask how the, the politics of this went? Because there will still be at this time, and, and I suppose we're moving a bit of running before we, we get to where we want to go, uh, um, there would still be at this time some traditional breeders who, who wouldn't be very keen on bringing a French breed to pollute the, what has the, a breed that's got a 200-year history. And how did that go about? And, and how was the register and the grading up and all that sort of thing? Was it seamless or was it complicated? I came in on the on the tail end of this. So how it was actually went about, uh, it, how it was introduced, I don't know. There certainly was some controversy um there were there were some people who insisted that the new short ones were more or less a tartan charley uh, which was i think a term of abuse um <laughs> i take that <laughs> um yeah so I, i'm sure it wasn't easy there were there isn't if you look back in the herd books there isn't a, a you know this experimental register at the back and they they, they were the percentages were recorded on the pedigree certificates so that you know they were they were allowed in um with a percentage recorded behind them but they, they were given a percentage of short horn blood to start with so that they were allowed in ahead of any other breed of course and this would come at a controversial time i suppose which we'll move on to in a second with the the, the importations from uh, from the americans and, and from down under as well but just uh, on that story there that uh, of course we might uh, hopefully get a podcast done on the Lincoln Red breed and, and that being short on based there they possibly brought different blood again into that breed these things have been done to improve these breeds and, and, and long may it continue so some of these animals that would have the genetics that would have come in from Canada there would some of those a bit like the Angus the larger ones come in there to lift the breed off the, up the legs a little bit and would they 
would they be crossing those of the main on June? Would there be complications in, in the pedigrees and the herd book because of that? I think the breed got to a stage that they, they, they had to really look anywhere really to, to, to solve this problem. And I think fair credit to them, all credit to them, they did that. They brought the main on June and they did go further afield. And yeah, there may be other bits and pieces in there that came in at a time. Of course, we didn't have DNA then, so we didn't really know. Now, if you're importing something as we've done, in terms of embryos and and and, and semen, you, you have to get you know things tested first of all and make sure they are what they are. Um, but you know a lot of breeds have added something over the years, and it's important that we keep evolving. So um, I think the important thing is that they recognised, albeit quite late in the day, that, that they needed to change the breed, and, and and but they did it and they stuck with it and they and they and they kept things going long enough for for the next generation, if you like, to get involved. Sure, the cloudy waters in their pedigree maybe wouldn't be as, as much an embarrassment as perhaps uh, some people try to point out. And, and that's fair enough. It's all about evolution, isn't it? And and, uh, and as we'll see shortly, the short one is back uh, uh, where it is. by it, it, It's by what people did, not what the cattle did. And, and, and people take credit for that. Just, just moving back a little bit, we're in the 60s here. And 1968 was... Uh, significant year not just because it had seen the breed started a massive revival in canada but uh, because david sinclair won smithfield with uh, with phoenix freeze and he was the first pure short horn steer to do so since 1915 and he sold for 3100 and i've seen pictures of him a white beast and a great beast wasn't he yes indeed he was and i i think that's something we've we've possibly missed out on now there is quite a bit of talk just now about a revival of um a for the short run within the fat stock shows. Um, whether it will come about, I don't know, but um, there's certainly some talk out there. And, I, and if, we, if we are a beef breed, then then possibly, um, you know, it's long overdue. My halcyon days at Smithfield were through the late 70s through to the 90s, and I remember the breed disappearing altogether, and Angus breed still being there. I used to take the old Angus down in Hereford, and there'd only be four or five in each of those classes, but the short ones disappeared from the, from the pure register mm-hmm. down, and they probably still haven't come back, as far as I know. I don't think they have, no. Okay, let's let's move on and look at the, the polled side of the breed. I mentioned it briefly, and um, they were developed in the USA in the 1900s in a couple of ways, I think. And uh, by 1972 in in, um, in Perth, the polled had their own championship. So uh, they're obviously catching on over here. But as there was a divide between the dairy and the beef, there was starting to become a divide between the, the polled and, and the non-polled. And, and we heard quite an in-depth analysis on last week's uh, podcast from uh, Dr. Bob Hook in the USA as to how the, the poll was developed at the turn of the century and, and took off uh, extremely fast over there. By 1972, the overall uh, championship in um, in Perth was won by Carl Rossi with a polled bull. And, and later in 1975, another Carl Rossi bull, Roan Rover, won, uh, won the Highland and... Uh, did, did everybody have a little bit of pole in their herd and we all just trying a bit and, and mixing it in or, or were they going to go down different rows like the Hereford did? And uh, yeah, Kerry, you had some pole cattle in, in, in the start of your herd there just to just to tell me um, how, how they fitted in. It's not like the Hereford where, where they ha, have polled herds, although some um, such as Upsil, for example, have pursued it harder than others. Um, I think you'll, you'll, you'll find it's becoming more and more important. Um, but I think you'll find pole cattle in probably nearly every herd. I, I'm fortunate at the moment, but more by luck than judgment. My, my three stock bulls are all homozygous polled at the moment. Um, it's not something I particularly planned, although I, I, do, I, I haven't consciously bought a horn bull um, for many years. There was always this thought that um, if you a pole 
cattle and are never as strong in the bone as you know as horn cattle and i don't know if there's any evidence for that but i i, I suspect there's there's a suspicion still i i read mm. i read a a statement by um a short horn purist that said if you breed the horns off you'll breed the head and the ass off them as well so i'm not quite sure that's right or not that's another controversial statement that i'll probably get shot for <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think what the advice i was given once about horned and pulled and it, it was every now and again i'm not sure if it was every third or every fourth bull you had to put a put a horn bull back in if you were going down that pulled route and it was quite similar to Every third or fourth stock bull, you need to put a white bull back in to get your colour right. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I can't remember, I don't know if Katie's any comment on that, but and in, certainly the, bone... in, in the continental breed, they say every third or fourth bull, you need to go back to the origins to France to find another one to, to put them right. So there's got to be some truth in it somewhere. Moving on then, another couple of herds we need to, to, to touch on here just to make sure everybody gets uh, gets their fair share of this uh, historic uh, detailed podcast. We've got Willie McGowan at uh, starting Finn Gask back in the 1940s, but uh, he's always been there at the top and particularly at the Fatstock shows we mentioned just now where his daughter, of course, Elizabeth Lang, would be a familiar face in the winner's enclosure in, in Smithfield. Another great character, John. Yeah, and I was just speaking to her at Sterling the other day. She's such a character, such an enthusiast for the breed. Um, just mad keen, still mad keen on the breed. So it's been great to have her, her about um, for us younger breeders, um, encouraging us. And yeah, she did so much for the breed at the time. And um, yeah, it was great to see. Yes, if I could just come in there. Willie was a great influence on me in the early days. And I'd, <laughs> he was some character. I remember um, one of my first judging stints, I think, of short ones was that five show and i um did the the deed of putting a a young white calf bull calf ahead of his somewhat older bull calf and they pulled me to one side afterwards and said i thought you can't mere about short ones and that <laughs> uh, and um but that was willie i didn't know willie at times so i thought whoa, 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 what's going on here but um yeah he'd speak his mind but uh, what, a, what a man yeah what a man that's exactly what we can say about him as i said he deserves his place marker as much for his character as his cattle but his cattle certainly have uh, have been there and thereabouts in, in the breed and the shows for a long time and, and another one i think we might have touched on earlier on of course was bill bruce who would start uh the Balmile herd in, uh, in 1972 with a 120 beef and dairy shorthorns and some main anjou and, and uh, with bulls like Penn and Tiger and some fairly hefty culling, I guess the herd soon uh, hit the straps, didn't it? And it would be a combination of Bill Bruce and of course Stockman Fryer Thompson, who who was uh, instrumental there, that would secure no less than 11 Perth champions and uh, and seven reserves. So this 11 and 12 number seems to keep re reoccurring. And uh, Fryer, of course, went on and won the Herdsman's Cup outright. And probably the most significant breeder of, of recent times, uh, Carey. I would have thought. Uh, would I be right? I would say so. Yeah, I, I think he was a bit of a visionary, to be honest. And, and of course, he was a pretty eminent Charlie breeder as well. Um, his method of, you know, the commitment to buy 120 dual-purpose and dairy shorthorns, cross them with a main anjou, and then back-cross them with um, two um, um, modern but traditionally bred um, reserve champions from Perth, and they were called Burton Dickler and Penn and Tiger. Um, and, that, and then thereafter, he got his cows and, and he set about fixing the type. And, the, the, you know, there were there were one or two really, really well-known bulls at the time. Balmal Scorpio was was one that Bill used a lot himself. Balmal Universe went on to win the MLC recorded class at Highland Show, beating 30 other um, cattle of nine different breeds. Wow. Every single 
I, I think I'm right in saying every single notable breeder will use a Balmile bull at one time, Glen Isla, Chapleton, Upper Mill used a couple, um, Fingask had one, um, and then, of course, Crackle went on down to John Doughty, Zephyr, was it Zephyr went to Orkney? I mean, there were it was an astonishing achievement. Um, yeah. So yeah, huge influence on the breed. Influence because yeah. coming in with a, with a different different head on, a different hat on, and looking at the breed from a, from a clean sheet rather than from the traditional side. And 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 as you said, it did him well. The herd dispersed in 1990, I think. And Balmal Crackle that you mentioned uh, was sold in Perth in 1991 for four thousand, having been champion there. And uh, he'd team up with Upper Mill Flossie to win the the Burke Trophy in 1993, the first time for a while, I think. And uh, John Doughty had him, and I remember what an absolute cracking beast. I remember falling in, back in love with with Shorthorns myself and a lot of other people as well, realising the merit of the Shorthorn when you saw Crackle standing there amongst uh, some of these other great breeds and, and holding his own. Those bulls that John Doughty used to bring to, to, to Perth at the time off Crackle, I remember he used to have, there was a line of bulls, and they were all fire starter. They all had names beginning with fire, mm-hmm. and they were just big, stretchy red bulls that just did a real job. Uh-huh. Certainly, as I said, he, may, he might not have been traditional, but he certainly was a. He was a, as we said earlier on, a great beast is is never a wrong, uh, is a is a bad colour or a bad breed. Mm-hmm. And moving on, I suppose one of the saddest facts is that the the shorthorn breed were accepted on the rare breed survival trust in 1987, I think. And and credit to them, they wouldn't be on their own back then. I think the the Welsh Black and a few others, and I'm going to get shot for this, but Welsh Black and a few others made it onto that 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 rare breed list as well. And and great thing the rare breed list was there, I suppose, and started at that time to preserve some of these genetics. But uh, it's, it's a it was a long fall from from where they'd been with five thousand uh, members. And and Kerry, that's around about the time you joined, I think. So uh, tell us a bit more about about Lockor and and, and Dunsar and how it started and. Uh, I so saw you had a bull at 7,000 uh, this week in, in Serling. Well done. And uh, uh, tell us how, where you found genetics in, in 1987 when there weren't many of them about. Well, yes. First of all, the, the bull that, that, that just sold there um, yesterday, I actually sold as a, a cow uh, with a calf at foot and um, David Leggett bought it. And um, I was very pleased for him that he'd, um, with a, that he'd um, turned it out. And um, I think it's the first time that David's um, actually taken a bull to... That side of the rock. Did he sell it? <laughs> no, did, he, did he sell it? No, no, he stood there looking very meek and mild. And, um... good, good man, David, good man. <laughs> well, funny enough, I, I started in the early 80s. And funny enough, actually, it's not well known, but actually, my first short horns were actually a strain of dairy short horns, the northern dairy short horns. And I, I lived near Hoyk in the borders at that time, and I had some multiple sucklers, and I used them for um, suckling. When I moved to Argyle, um, yeah, I took them with me, uh, and I went to the bull sales, thinking, "Oh, I need a, I need a bull," um, and I bought an Oppermol bull, um, a Mandalong Super Elephant um, son, who I was able to put over these dairy shorthorns because, as I say, they interbreed and registrable. So that was my start. Soon after, I bought some Balmile cattle, and at the time I moved down here to Lanarkshire, I. I, I Bought another, brought in the teams of cattle from from Bill Bruce, Um that's how I started, um, and then, then I've been, just been playing around 
playing myself for, for 30 odd years down here. Well, you had a fairly successful reduction sale as it last year, the year before. Cattle made a lot of money and went to some good homes and started some uh, some new breeders as well. So um, underpinned a few of them with some good genetics. Uh, a credit to you. Well, I hope I hope so. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was helped out. I hope some people got. Um, I think there were the good, there were good solid cattle that I sold. Um, the, the whole ob- object, the exercises, was to simplify things, a bit reduce numbers. I'm not sure it's actually simplified things at all, really. Yeah. You know, if you're carving sixty or seventy cows, it's just as hard work as carving a hundred. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, not sitting not sitting with your feet up watching uh, watching the TV just yet, then. I wish, I wish. <laughs> now, the breed we should mention, round about that, I suppose, that 80s time, I think 70s would be uh, Glen Isla from uh, Major Gibb, started in the early 70s, I think, with a purchase of Balmile Express in, in 1986 for 5,000. Would that, uh, would that put, uh, put the herd at the top? I'm not, I'm not sure that that... I think that might be a slightly controversial. John Gibb had been breeding for quite a while before that, and he's been very, very good at you know buying bulls to complement what he had. I, I'm sure Express made a contribution, but um, John's been you know just I mean John is one of the best, most respected breeders, um, particularly for his heifers and his cows, cow breeding, but but bulls as well. Um, so I, I think he's just, um, you know, I, I have had one of my earliest bulls was a, a bull of his and it was bred by a, a Tasmanian, side by a Tasmanian bull. So John's been very good at mixing and matching different different bloodlines to, to achieve. He, he's got a particular, he's got a, a good eye for a for a cow, that's for sure. I suppose we should mention the, the, the breeds coming up from down under as well. We're just sticking with the, I just mentioned Balmar Express there because I think at the time he was the, Despite in 1986 the, the the breed going onto the rare breed list, he he at the time at 5,200 was the highest priced bull of any breed uh, that week, uh, which I find quite. So there was, there was always a, a trade for the good ones, I suppose is probably what I'm saying. And uh, I believe Bill Bruce actually bought him back later on, didn't he? I think he did, and he he was. I think it was Friar Thompson's favourite bull. I think I'm right in saying he was. Okay. He was a dramatic beast. He was he, yeah. He was a fabulous beast at the sale. Yeah. And by 1996, there were just 20 short-on bulls at, uh, at, at Perth uh, Spring Sales, and but again, the top price 6,200. But more importantly, the uh, the females were starting to come into demand, weren't they? I think some people probably got into them because they wanted to preserve the breed. Others maybe got in because they were a cheap way of getting into a pedigree breed. I don't, I don't know, but they certainly new breeds started to come in, such as uh, Dan Ball at Croxton Park and. Charles and Sally Horrell, of course, and Harry at um, Pode Hole, um, who went on to do really well. And, and yourself, John, that'd be round about your time coming into the. I'm not saying you got into them because they're cheap, John. I wouldn't say that, but uh, that's your time to coming into the breed. <laughs> well, I don't think they were too. We got into them. We went off. I was going off to New Zealand, I think maybe 96, when the Karossi dispersal happened. And we, we viewed the cattle before I went and I left that. And uh, my sisters went down and bought some females. And we bought um, the, our, our started females there. We had a. We had a Ruth. I don't know if there's any Ruths kicking around anymore, but unfortunately we lost her. Um, but she did do some good. She left uh, some good cattle, um, some, um, a bull. Um, and then we bought from Glen Isla and some from Kerry as well. So really our original families, which are now still with us, were Monique's, which go back to uh, Menajou and then the Fairy Puffer, as we discussed earlier on. Um, but over and over the years, we've added bits and pieces. We bought from the Austin's dispersal. We bought cows in New Zealand um, a few years ago and flushed them and took and took the embryos across. And yeah, we've just added um, 
haven't added many to him. He's really built things up. And I remember Donald Bigger, we talked about him earlier, um, coming to see us. We were about five or six years in, and I wasn't sure what we were going to do, really. We had a few bulls. Um, we're just selling away quietly. And I, we were thinking about, well, is this really for us? And he said, no, stick at it. He bought a bull from us. Stick at it. You're doing the right thing. And it was the following year we, we took that bull, Scotsman, to Sterling, mm-hmm. uh, to, to Perth, as it was. And uh, I still remember you getting kicked by Seamus, his pen, his pen mate. And, uh, uh, yeah, sold Scotsman for 11000 to Landers. Um, and, and Seamus was away at five. And uh, just hooked ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought them at the start. Because, well, at 21, I fancied a pure breed and they were an affordable breed you could get into. And, uh, yeah, I just wouldn't think that it would take us on the journey it's taken us on and, and the friends we've met along the way and, the, and, and it's done, they've done really well for us. Incredible. Incredible, yeah. And, and doing well, as you said, you're back at the top and I'm sure you've got a good string of bulls coming in, coming on again now. And, and, and John, and you and I have spoken on a previous podcast where you have a, a sale at home now selling uh, selling bulls to the commercial man and the pedigree men through the internet, which is, you know, is another great advance and shows the forward thinking of yourself and a, a lot of other breeders in the breed. And we left the, the last episode talking about the biggest from Chapleton who, who remained at the top for many decades. And I know they bought some... Um, Toffs Romany from James Playfair, and and uh, who who won the Royal and the Highland, I think in '95, a great bull. And uh, so, despite them being wiped out in in foot and mouth in 2002, the Chapelton cattle were still winning shows. Bulls such as Nimrod at Upper Mill, promoter owned by the Horrells, and Chapelton chose to restock. I think mainly using a lot of U.S. genetics. Would I be right? And perhaps we should take a closer look at that, uh, John. Can you help me from where some of the some of the cattle at yeah. Chapelton got restocked from? Roly Bateman was heavily involved there, and they brought embryos over um, from Canada and America. Um, and then they 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 bought quite sensibly um, from the UK as well. In terms of they they bought back from the, the families wherever they could, they went and got got back. And a lot of breeders um, sold them heifers back, and they brought in. Yeah, they chose some really good bulls to mix in with these genetics coming in from abroad. And um, while I was at the the Scottish Club presentation, the herd competition presentation the other night, and um, yeah, Chapleton were featured pretty strongly. They're, they're, yeah, they're doing well. There's some really good genetics still there, and um, they'll be here for a long time to come. Good, good, and that's good to hear. Certainly, as we've documented, as I've said, three, four, five pedigree, five uh, generations of, of biggers being at the top of, the, of all the breeds they've been in, and that's great to see that uh, that going. And if I just took a look at a few other significant herds i should say should be credited in the last couple of decades uh james porter in ireland buying the upper mill herd um uh it took the whole lot didn't he yeah took the whole lot um i think they were booked in and then suddenly no they were they were heading to ireland so um you know when you look back decades ago i suppose whole herd sales happened a little bit more um than it does now but um yeah no they're still going over in ireland and james has done extremely well with him hasn't he and in, in a a lot of top cattle coming out from there and and, um, and a lot of top prize winners as well. Yeah, it's great to see. I think um, one of the exciting things about the breed just now is there are a lot of, of of new herds and a lot of herds you don't know the name of, but there's some nice cattle coming forward. And I think that there's there's real diversity within the breed there. So um, it's great to see. It certainly keeps you on your on your toes. I don't know about you, Katie. I find that anyway. Certainly do. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> and we've got names like Lowther, who I think were in in the money this week, selling females at a good trade, ten and eleven thousand. And and uh, Simon Farmer's uh, family, of course, it, it, in the short horns as well. And uh, not quite sure how they all fit together. That family, uh, John. 
Well, yeah, no, Simon uh, was farming with Tina further south, but uh, son Tom is up in Dumfries now, and I think uh, David has other sons in the mix as well. And they sold, yeah, a bull for a record price there in, in Serling in the spring, and uh, they've got some Texel sheep there as well. But yeah, really making a good job of things and just turning cattle out um, just at 12 o'clock every time. So great to see youngsters like that in the in the in the business we've got um the mayors up in aberdeenshire also um new in the scene and, and various others um yeah taking the boot forward it's, it, it's good good to see that and you mentioned uh, um the bradley's just with a few texel sheep i think they had a record price seventy thousand pounds for a top this year so they're not just playing at that game but it's good to see some new enthusiasts come into the breed but with experience in other breeds and we mentioned how some of the short on boys went on and bred continentals and it's had some of those coming back in. But some of these guys, like you mentioned, the mares at Muresque, who are great dairy breeders, of course, and then the top Suffolk sheep breeders. And, um, and we've got the likes of Woody, uh, James Cameron, with the train view herd, James and Val doing well with that. And uh, uh, likewise has been involved in quite a few other breeds over the years and got some breeding experience and uh, um, Woody if you're listening thanks very much for your help that you've given me towards uh, researching some of this and of course Stuart Curry uh, um, across in Yorkshire there another great yep. Texel breeder so people are coming in with with breeding experience not necessarily of this type of breed but it's about understanding the pedigrees and what goes behind them isn't it it is and I think that the really good thing about the breed is it's it's a still a really friendly breed to be involved with and um, you know we all help each other, and we blend that experience and and energy, if you like, of new breeders, and and just work away. And and you know we're a thousand members now, breeders. It's a very exciting place. We're, we're sort of looking forward to the next two hundred years. Um, I hope we can achieve in the next two hundred years what's been achieved in the first two hundred. Sure, and and we've got new ones coming in again with recent big money investors in inverted commas um um the likes of cowford of course where charlie reed is now where they basically come in and just built an entire farm around setting a herd up there and, and uh, that's 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 enthusiasm from these people to put the money uh straight in at the front end there with it with the right people well i think if you look back andy we've always been, had, had external investors involved in, in cattle and um it's great it, it's still coming and people are, are seeing cattle as a sound investment um mm-hmm. uh, and of course there's um, a few others into the breed I can't name them all guys I'll leave it to you actually who else have I missed off here is going to be rather rather upset that they weren't included in the history of this great breed I should maybe mention Glen Arif down in Norfolk the Barretts they've you know um, Tranley, Bob Harrod at Tranley he's not so well and he's not got so many now and um, maybe should mention knock and jig they're sold up now and and, and of course we, we must i know you're going to say something at the end but you know we we must pay tribute to jack ramsey and mm-hmm. milliston as well sure uh, before we just wrap up then uh registrations you said over a thousand so obviously we're no longer on the rare breed list thankfully very much and and what is the record breed i think john you broke the record did you know what what, what is the what is the record breed now on, on, on cows and bulls and where are we going with this Oh, we were sort of modern day record. Oh, some time ago now, the the new record for bulls is is twenty seven thousand um, guineas, uh, and I think for females it might be seventeen thousand. Mm-hmm. I think um, given what we're getting for bulls, that'll probably be broken again at some stage soon when the right bull with the right figures um, comes along. Uh, yeah, and as I said, we've got over a thousand members, so registrations are you know, even more than that, and it's it's just going. It's great to see. 
No, it's great to see, but it's great to discuss when you see how, how, how influential this breed has been. And hopefully people listening to this will understand that the Shorthorn breed, what it's been through and where it is now, just how influential it has been, um, not just in the UK, but across the world and, and exchanging genetics uh, backwards and forwards. And, and I appreciate your time. And, and finally, I don't normally do dedications on this uh, show, but I would like to posthumously thank both uh, Jack Ramsey of Milliston and Donald Bigger at Chapleton because as well as being friends of mine it's men like these uh, with their knowledge and stories that have inspired me to uh, to, to start Top Lines and Tales and, and, and Jack would have kept me right on this one uh, uh, cheers fellow if you're up there um, fellas you've kept me right as well and uh, we'll add a few photographs if you can furnish us with some of those on our on our um, Facebook page and uh, it's been great uh, having these two episodes with you I really appreciate your time Thanks very much, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Great to be involved. Well, uh, and I wish you, uh, the breed uh, um, good luck with the 200th year of the celebration of the of the Coates Herd book. Uh, we'll catch you again for a dram soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another podcast from Top Lines and Tales, and I hope you've enjoyed, as I have, this journey through the history of these great native breeds in the UK. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, of course, suppliers and manufacturers of high-quality nutrition and, and nutritional advice. This episode, as always, will be backed up by photographs on our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page. Uh, please tune in and have a look, and, and by all means, contribute photographs of your own. And we'll see you all soon on the next episode of Top Lines and Tales.